Well, on behalf of the elders, we're going to just share with you how encouraged we are by Milestone, um, just how God has worked in the hearts of our young people to cause them to grow and mature in the Lord, to see them immerse themselves in the Lord's work, source of great joy and encouragement to our hearts. We just expect a great time of ministry this fall quarter and ask that God would use you guys and use us mildly for His purposes. Well, let's get to our study in the Gospel of John, chapter 10. By way of reminder, just want to remind all of us the reason, the purpose, the end goal of our study of the Gospel of John. It really is to glorify Christ. It is to um, bring Him pleasure, magnify our Lord and Savior. Now, what does it mean to glorify Christ? I've been reading um, Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. And to be honest with you guys, I've never been a big Piper fan. Loved Desiring God, but felt it was somewhat repetitive. Future Grace felt to me a little like a repackaging of Desiring God. I enjoyed his legacy of sovereign joy, uh, the hidden smile of God. And then, the first book that I really enjoyed, cover to cover, was this book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. I mean, a must-read for all ministers of the church. It's a radical book. Now, with his latest, Don't Waste Your Life, man, I'm just really enjoying it. My wife and I are reading it together, and we're just sharing, and it's been a source of much challenge to my heart. And he's got one illustration about glorifying Christ that is so, so accurate and appropriate. He says that, Glorifying Christ, another word to put it is magnify. And there is two ways to magnify things. There is a telescope. Um, excuse me, start with the other one. There is the microscope where you magnify something that is small and make it look bigger than it actually is. So maybe you look at a single cell or you look at a dust mite or you look at an amoeba and you project it a thousand times and you take it to Kinko's and you print it out, and you have a poster-sized picture of a dust mite, and it's bigger than it actually is. Well, that's not what we're doing when we're studying the Scriptures. What we're actually doing is like the Hubble telescope. When the Hubble telescope looks out into the spans of the universe and locks into a galaxy, maybe 10 million miles, 50 million miles away, locks onto a supernova or a star system, and it takes this color picture, and we receive it, and we look at it. It's, it's portraying what it actually is. We're seeing the glory of the heavens. So that's what we're doing when we're studying the Gospel of John. We're attempting to see Christ as He actually is. We're not making a big thing out of a small Christ. No, He is Christ who is glorious, who is powerful, who is majestic, who is beautiful, thrice holy. But because of our sinfulness, our view of Him has been dimmed. And so, with that intent, we endeavor to study the Scriptures verse by verse, to see Christ accurately, to glorify Him, to magnify Him as He is. And that's why we're studying the Gospel of John verse by verse, and I believe, by grace, by the grace of God, we have been somewhat successful. 
I don't know about you guys, but my heart has been enlarged by our study in John's Gospel. Seeing Christ as He really is. And we do that again today. Today, we will look at the identity of Christ as the shepherd and His works. The true identity of Christ as the shepherd and His works. (coughs) Now, last week, we studied the first five verses of John chapter 10. John 6 tells us, chapter 10 verse 6 tells us, that our Lord spoke in a figure of speech. And the people, particularly the Pharisees, did not understand it. Now we need to understand that John 10 is not a parable. It's not a parable. Many people think it's a parable, but this word, which occurs numerous times in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will see Christ spoken parables numerous times. That word does not occur a single time in the Gospel of John. The word figure of speech here is the Greek word paroimai, which means a figure of speech, figurative language. Now, what is the difference? A parable is an extended simile. English 101, real quick. I have to research this, so if you don't know, don't feel bad, right? <laughs> a parable is an extended simile. For example, there are many parables, right? What's a, what's a simile? You know, he is like, like a rock. Or, you know, playing the newlywed game against the shins is like taking candy from a baby. <laughs> right? That's a simile, right? So there are many biblical similes. Um, kingdom of heaven is like... A feast, right? All men are like grass. Um, Isaiah forty thirty one, they will soar on wings like eagles. These are similes and parables are just extended similes. Now, paroimis, they are extended metaphors. <coughs> metaphors make the com- make the comparison implicitly. Makes the comparison implicitly, and in the Gospel of John. It's filled with metaphors. I'm the light of the world. Not, I am like the light of the world. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am, I am. And here we find one of the great paromas in the Gospel of John. I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Now, why did Christ employ figurative language to explain spiritual truth? Why did He do this? He did this because of chapter 9, verses 39 through 41. After He healed the man who was born blind, our Lord said that Christ came on the earth to give sight to the blind. And the Pharisees said, Are we blind too? And Christ said, if you said you were blind, you would not be. But because you claim to be, to have sight, spiritual sight, you are indeed blind. And he, he shares this figure of sp- figurative language, he uses this figurative language to reveal the depth of their spiritual blindness. Right? They claim to see. Christ says, you claim to see? Let me show you how blind you are. And he employs... This extended metaphor. Now, if you're a teacher, if you're a mom, you know metaphors. You know similes. Why? Because 
These are things you use to explain things to children. Right? Like, Mommy, why is that the case? I don't have illustrations here, but... (laughs) Well, it's because it's like this, Elizabeth. Right? It's like this, Benjamin. Right? Mommy is like this, or Daddy is like this. We use illustrations, right? To, To explain difficult things to simple minds. Well, that's what Christ is doing. He's taking, lo- he's taking lofty truth, spiritual truth, and putting the cookie on the lower shelves where people don't understand. But what happens in verse 6? The Pharisees don't get it. Right? Simple truth. Christianity 101. Now, this blind man gets it. He's been blind his whole life. Never read a book. He understands. The common people who speak this common language, never been studied, never been educated, they understand. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, men reared in the study of theology, study of scripture, they have no clue. And Christ uses his figurative speech to reveal to them, indict them of their spiritual blindness. Now, in the passage set before us, we see Christ extending this paroimai and revealing who he really is and his works. Right. Let's go to the text. In verse 7, when, when they don't understand this truth, when they are blind to it, our Lord doesn't rebuke them, reject them, and turn them away. He reaches out to them by explaining again in simple terms who he is and what his works are, why he came. First of all, let's look at the identity of the shepherd. In verses 2, 3, and 4, <coughs> implicitly, those statements point to the shepherd. But he does not identify who the shepherd is exactly. It is not until verse 11 we find out who the shepherd is. In verse 11, our Lord declares, I am the good shepherd. Verse 14 again, I am the good shepherd. Those five words are packed with spiritual truth. It's like spiritual Red Bull. That, that, those five words. Right? Let's look at the grammatical structure of the sentence and we'll break it down um, a word at a time. In the Greek, the structure is very different. Literally, in the Greek, there are two articles. It reads, I am the shepherd, the good one. I am the shepherd, the good one. The first clause is, I am the shepherd. Now, Jewish people understood. The Pharisees understood what he was talking about. Because they understood from Psalm 23 that the Lord is the shepherd of Israel. Right? They understood from Psalm 80 that God is the shepherd of God's people. And that Psalm 95 we read this morning, that we are the sheep of his hand. And when Jesus says, I am the shepherd, they understood it's a claim to deity. Our Lord is making Himself equal to God. And you know what? He says, I am the shepherd of God's people. That article is important. He is saying, He is not one of many. He is not a shepherd. He is the shepherd, unique, the one and only, the true shepherd of Israel. Verse 8, he says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. He's not talking about John the Baptist. He's not talking about Elijah, Jeremiah, and the prophets of old. He's talking about the Pharisees who are in the audience listening to him. 
all of you who have come before me, that are standing before me, you are all thieves and robbers. You are all false shepherds. I am the good one. The final phrase, I am the shepherd, the good one. That's very instructive for us. In the Greek, there are two words for good. The first word for good in the Greek is agathos. From that, we get the name Agatha. Right? Agatha, it means uh, the good one. Agathos means good in the sense of moral quality. That's all. Good in the sense of moral quality. Now, let me illustrate this. When I was in college, I lived with a guy for two years who loved to sing praise songs. He had this one particular song. You know, praise the Lord, hallelujah, I don't care what the devil's going to... He would he just love to sing that song. So I, I kind of pity for him. Maybe. So I taught him how to play guitar. So he could sing that song and play the guitar and sing it while he, and play while he's singing. Now, in my life, I've taught several people how to play guitar. I've never regretted it, except this one time. <laughs> I should not have taught this guy to play guitar, because this man could not hold a note to save his life. He could not. He was the most tone-deaf man in all of Orange County. He would ruin every song he sang. And there were certain songs that I didn't want him to sing, because he would ruin it for me. I could no longer sing a song in my personal worship after hearing him sing that particular song. Now, all the songs that he sang were good songs. He never sang like heavy metal songs, right? Or he didn't sing like rap songs. But he sang all praise songs. But he didn't sound good. So if I were to describe his songs, I would say, Agatha's songs. They're morally good. Period. Right? That's all they are. The other Greek word for good is kolos. Kolos. It means more than just morally good. It means beautiful. It means supremely excellent. It means loveliness. The best word is beautiful. Right? And so the illustration would be you ever hear a morally good song sung beautifully? Uh, if there's any reason to go to um, the Christmas concert at, at Grace, it's to hear Jubilant Sykes sing. Man, you know, if, you, if you've heard him sing, you know what I'm talking about. A few years ago, we were at Shepherd's Conference, and he came out, and he sang, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? And I loved that song ever since I was young, as a young believer. And he's got this great baritone voice. And that song has that, like, moaning, right? I don't want to do it now, but... <laughs> and where he just groans, and he just groans. And at the end, he just goes on for, like, like an hour. He just goes, right? And it's just, we all just stood up and just praised God with it. It was so beautiful. See, when Jubilant Sykes sings a Christian song, it's not just Agathos, morally good, but it's colossal, it's beautiful, the way he sings it. And that is what Christ is saying here. He didn't say, I am the Agathos one. He said, I am colossal. I am beautiful. 
supremely beautiful, magnificent, awesome. I am the excellent shepherd. You guys are all false shepherds. I am the beautiful one. That's the identity of Christ. Isn't that awesome? That's who He is. Now, He is beautiful, not just because of what He is, but what He does. He does five things for the sheep that reveal His beauty. First thing He does, the first work of the shepherd is that He saves the sheep. He saves the sheep. John 10, verse 3, we studied last week how Christ calls the sheep out by name and leads them out. In a fold, there were many flocks of sheep with many shepherds. Christ would come and He would call out His flock by name. And when the, when the, when the sheep heard the Master's voice, they would respond. It was irresistible. They were trained that way. And, they were, and Christ would call them and they would come out one by one and He would lead them out. And verse 9, He will lead them out through the door. Verse 8, which is Christ Himself. I am the door. He will lead them through Himself. Verse 9, so that He will be saved. Christ calls them this irresistible grace. He calls them to Himself so that they might be saved. That's what Christ said in John 14, 6, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Therefore, Christ calls the sheep through him, to Him. Romans 5, 1, We have been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 18, For through Him we have both access to the Father by one Spirit. The first work that reveals the beauty of Christ is that He saves the sheep. Second is that, and I love this, He lays His life down for His sheep. Verse 11, The good shepherd, the colossal shepherd, lays down His life for the sheep. Now this is where the spiritual analogy, spiritual uh, metaphor differs with the physical reality. In the physical realm, if the shepherd dies, then the sheep are dead. Because they have no protection. They can't run. They're at the mercy of the predators. But for Christ, it's different. His death is the means of the salvation of the sheep. That is how they are saved. Through His death. Matthew twenty twenty eight, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. How did He come to serve? To give His life as a ransom for many. Isaiah 53, 6, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Ephesians 5, 2, Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. Our Lord gave His life to save the sheep. He didn't die as a moral example. It was not a self-sacrifice. It was not martyrdom. He died to save His people. One of the songs that I'm singing a lot these days, the song that I asked the worship team to sing as a response to our message this morning, is that song. In a wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend, 
Who would have thought that a lamb could, what? Provide salvation and leave it up to man and to cooperate with God to be saved? Is that how the song goes? That doesn't even rhyme. (laughs) That's not how the song goes. Who would have thought that a lamb could, what? Rescue the sons of man. Oh, you rescue the sons of man. Jesus came to rescue the sheep, to save the sheep, give his life, not so that, hey, you guys cooperate, it's, your, it's up to you now, we participate to be saved. No, he came to lay down his life so that the sheep might be saved. Now contrast that with the hired hand. Look at verse two, twelve. excuse me. While the good shepherd lays down his life, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and he flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Verse 13, he flees because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. The greatest predator for the sheep, greatest enemy, are wolves. Philip Keller in his book, Shepherd looks at the Psalm 23, he said, Two wild wolves have been known to kill as many as 292 sheep in a single night of unbridled slaughter. He's been to, uh, uh, he's been on occasions where predators have come in and they were killed in a terrible, terrible uh, um, fight, terrible struggle. In a frightened stampede, he's seen dozens of sheep Killed by a single wolf. What is the response of the hired hand? He runs away. Now, this is important. There are two reasons why he runs. Two reasons. First reason he runs is because he's a hired hand. (laughs) No duh. I mean, that's that's what it says. This is important. (laughs) He runs because he's a hired hand. A profound principle. It reveals that a man does what he does because of what he, of what he is. Right? There is always a rigid consistency between character and conduct. A drunkard drinks because he is a drunkard. A liar lies because he's a liar. The thief steals because he's a thief. How can you tell when someone is a true shepherd and someone is a hired hand? You can't. They wear the same clothes. Only way you can tell is what does he do when he sees the wolf coming? If he runs, he's a hired hand. If he lays down his life, he's the shepherd. The running here revealed the true identity of these men. Arthur Pink says this in his commentary, Character is revealed by our conduct in the crises of life. When is it that the hired man runs? It is when he sees the wolf coming. It is the wolf that discovers the hired man. You might never have known who this man really was if the wolf had not come. End quote. This is very revealing, does it not? Right? How you act when the wolf comes reveals who you are. Right? 
when pain, trials, persecution, heartache, they don't produce who you are. They reveal who you are. Second reason why he runs, verse 13, does not care for the sheep. The Living Bible Translation, a paraphrase, says, the hired man runs because he is hired and he has no real concern for the sheep. He's talking about the Pharisees. He hits them right between the eyes and he says, you don't care. You don't care about these people. You don't care about this man who was born blind. You don't care about the masses. You just care for yourselves. You guys are mercenaries. You guys are employees. You're in it for the prestige. When trouble comes, you bail out. And the sheep get ruined, scattered, crippled, and devoured. And you don't care. You have no love for sheep. Your only love for is your pay. The Lord is pointing to the Pharisees, the unfaithful shepherds of Israel. That's great insight into ministry. Great insight. It's one thing that I will share about under shepherds. You know, I have respect for godly pastors. Now again, when I find out that a godly pastor has been at one church for over 10 years, immediate respect. Immediate. Because that tells me he was there when the wolf came. He saw the wolf come. He didn't run. He didn't flee. But he stood. He hung in there. Same thing for a Christian. When a Christian can stay in one place, whether it be a job, whether it be a tough relationship, whether it be a, just a discipleship relationship with someone who won't listen, someone who's not growing, and you stick at it for long term, instant respect. Because I know that long of a time, the wolf has come. The, the fact that the person stays reveals who they really are. They're not in it for the other things. Their heart is because they care for the flock. They care for God's people. They are true shepherds. Now, when a believer or a shepherd or a minister or a church leader stands against the sheep, I'll tell you guys, you grow in confidence as a shepherd. You grow in confidence to stand against greater wolves. We see this illustration in 1 Samuel 17 when David was going out against the giant Goliath. And King Saul's like, David, what are you doing? You can't go against this giant. You're a little boy. What did David say? My king, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I didn't run. I went after that bear. I went after that lion. I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When that lion turned on me, I seized it by its hair. I struck it and I killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Isn't that awesome? 
See, if David fled, he would never experience the power of God. He said, the Philistine will die because of the Lord. And I've experienced that in my battle against wolves, lions, and bears. If David had fled, he would have never experienced God's power. But because he stood and fought, he experienced God's might. And that's why, somewhat, you know, I don't know if I share this or not, but you know, Bob and I, we have some confidence here at Cornerstone, shepherding the flock, <clears throat> because we've been here when the wolf came. Forget that, not just wolf, but wolves. We've been here when the lions, bears, cougars, snakes, scorpions, sharks, wild boars, like animal planet. <laughs> right, when they've come and attacked us, attacked the flock, man, it would have been easy for us. Man, so easy to run. Really, like, maybe I've been tempted to pack my bags a little bit, you know? Lace up my shoes. Maybe Bob has too. But a true shepherd, right? Because of who they are and because of their care for the sheep, they stand and fight. And more you stay, more you bear through it, the greater confidence you have, not in of yourself, but in Christ. Well, our Lord... He saves the sheep. When the wolf comes, he lays his life down for the sheep. Third, and I, this is great, the good shepherd knows and loves the sheep. Verse 14 and 15. The hired man doesn't care. The good shepherd, I know my own. My own knows me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. The know here is gnosko, which means personal knowledge, experiential knowledge. It's talking about intimacy and love. How well do I know my flock? I know my flock just as well as God knows me and I know God the Father. I love my Father. I have intimate knowledge of Him. In like manner, I love and have intimate knowledge for the flock. Isn't that beautiful? Like, that's us. Like, Christ knows us. He cares for us personally. We're not like a herd that He's just gra- you know, moving through the land for, for grazing purposes. He cares for our souls intimately, individually, personally. Right? That our relationship with Christ is not just theoretical. It's not just doctrine and theology. But it's personal. It's a love relationship. That's why First Peter 5, 7, after Peter talks about the shepherd, right? he says, cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. As an under-shepherd, he knows the heart of the great shepherd. And he says, don't be anxious. Give it to Christ. Because he cares for you. Matthew 20, 11, 28 through 30, Christ says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, Come to me, because he cares. Well, he saves the sheep. Lays down his life. Our Lord is beautiful as a shepherd because he knows and loves the sheep. Number four, the good shepherd unites the sheep. Verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's talking about Gentiles, obviously. 
Right? Everyone there, they're in the Feast of Tabernacles. They're all Jew, the, part of the Jewish nation. Christ says, I have sheep that are not in this fold. The Gentiles. I must bring them also. They will also listen to my voice. And there will be one flock with one shepherd. For the good shepherd is beautiful because he unites the sheep. He promises that these two flocks will be united into one meaning the one international church, that in this church there will be no distinction, no special privileges, no special standing before God. They will be one, united with one shepherd. Ephesians 2.14, Romans 10.12, 1 Corinthians 12.13, We are all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, we are one in Christ. Colossians 3.11 Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Christ unites the sheep. Final one. Shepherd saves, shepherd lays his life, shepherd knows and loves, shepherd unites the final one is the good shepherd is beautiful because he causes division. He causes division. Consider, note the two extreme responses in verse 19 and 21, 19 through 21. There was again, again a division among the Jews. One group, clearly from the Pharisaic group, said he has a demon. He is demon possessed. Another group said, these are not the words of one who was oppressed by a demon. These are beautiful words. And how can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The good shepherd causes division. Good shepherd demands a decision. The good shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. All men are forced to decide where they stand. Our Lord came. Not to unite this world, but to divide the world. Luke 12, 51. Do you think I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you. I have come to bring division. King James Version says, I have come to bring a sword. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided. Three against two, and two against three. A father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, all because of me. The good shepherd is beautiful because he divides. I'll tell you, following Christ means, in a relational sense, in a heart sense, leaving people behind. Not like physically or anything like that, but spiritually, emotionally, in your heart. Following Christ means you're following Christ. You can't be united with the world in your heart, love the world, and love Christ. You can't love Christ and be a friend with this world. He demands division because He has come to divide. Are you with Him? Or are you against him? Well, just to close out our time, you know, let's go through those five works of Christ and apply them to under shepherds.
if I can just speak to all the flock shepherds at Cornerstone, all the small group leaders, all those who are teaching at our Sunday school ministry, all those who are uh, ministering in the nursery, all those who are uh, parents, all those who are brothers, older brothers or older sisters, all those who have any kind of influence on another believer, right? Which is everybody. <laughs> Let me just talk to you right now, okay? And apply Christ works with all of us. Because loving Christ means being a shepherd. Okay? Let me repeat that. Loving Christ means being a shepherd. Christ told, asked Peter, do you love me? Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. What did Christ say? Well, if you love me, you'll feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, I do love you. Take care of my lamb. Peter, third time, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. You know all things. Then take care. Feed my sheep. What did Christ do? Christ said, if you love me, you'll be an under-shepherd. You will save. You will lay down your life. You will love. You will unite. You will cause division. That's what love for Christ means. Therefore, number one, are you saving the sheep? Are you saving the sheep? Are you preaching the gospel? Are you like Paul, 1 Corinthians 9.16, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. May God judge me. May God condemn me to hell if I do not preach the gospel of Christ. Are you the kind of person who resolves to know nothing else but Christ and Him crucified? Are you the kind of man where your only boast is in the cross of Christ because you know that the cross of Christ is the only truth that saves lost sinners? Wayne Grudem says that the true under-shepherd is a life-giver. The life-giving preacher is a man of God whose heart is ever a thirst for God, whose soul is ever following hard after God, whose eye is single to God, and in whom by the power of God's Spirit, the flesh and the Word have been crucified, and his ministry is like the generous flood of a life-giving river, end quote. Are you saving the sheep? Are you preaching the gospel to the sheep. Are you preaching the gospel to fellow believers? We used to see this a lot at Cornerstone. I haven't heard it recently. We need to say this more again. We used to say a lot that the gospel is for believers. That the gospel is for Christians. It is wrong to think that our only role in saving people is to preach the gospel to the lost and pray for them. And that after they are converted, our job is done. No! Our job is to preach the gospel to believers. That, that lives depend on it because lives do. Because if believers don't persevere in their faith, then their faith is proved to be false. Then the only result is eternal destruction. Puritans rightly saw that the shepherd's goal is not merely to edify the saints. His goal is to save the saints. Therefore, 1 Timothy 4.16, he watches his life and doctrine so that his hearers may be saved. Who are his hearers? It's not the world. It's people in the church. 
He makes sure he's preaching the right gospel so that people in the church might be saved. Are you saving the sheep? Secondly, do you, are you laying down your life for the sheep? Paul said, I endure all things for the elect. I endure all things. First Corinthians 15.31, I die every day, I mean that, brothers. Meaning, he was in constant threat of death. He was facing death every day from persecution. Not only that, this concern for the church was so heavy upon him that he felt the weight of death upon his heart. He said, every day I die. He told the church of Philippi, you know, I'd rather die. For to me, die is gain. To be with Christ is my joy. But I will stay. Why? For you. For the elect. For the church. For the sheep. Are you laying down your life for the sheep? When the, when the heat is on, when the battle rages, are you digging in, ready and willing to give his life, to give your life for God's people? Third, the good under-shepherd knows and loves the sheep. Man, do you guys love one another? You know, one thing about Cornerstone, we're kind of, one, th- one, of the, one of the many things that we do is we want people to love us before they serve us, right? We do. That's why people come in from other churches and they're used to like, you've been here a week, how about leading Bible study, right? You've been here two weeks, how about leading worship? You know, get involved with ministry, we'll throw all these tasks at you and through ministry we'll grow in fellowship. Oh, that's one way to do it. But we believe Love comes before ministry. We want people to come and commit to us. I want people to come and love me first because I love them. I want them to love one another. I want them to love our doctrine, love our ministry, and then serve. I want to ask you, do you love fellow believers? Do you love the sheep? Look, if your ministry is limited to quote-unquote official times alone, you're not loving the sheep. If your time spent with the members is, you know, Wednesday night flock, Sunday, 12.05, I'm out of here, right, and that's it, you're not really loving them, right? You know, if you're not listening to the flock, if you don't know the flock, if you don't seek to understand fellow believers, you're not loving them. A good under-shepherd thinks about fellow believers, prays for them, asks them questions, is curious about their lives. He or she wants to know what they're all about, wants to hear their testimony, wants to hear how they're doing in the Lord, wants to hear their burdens, their prayer requests. They're curious about the flock. Why? Because Christ knows and loves the sheep, and therefore the under-shepherd knows and loves the sheep. Fourthly, the good under-shepherd unites the sheep, Right. The false shepherd focuses on the differences. Right. You know, they come and you know, they just focus on the differences. You know, you're married, I'm single. You know, you're short, I'm tall. You know, you went to that school and this school and therefore we can't fellowship. You're this and I'm that. True shepherd focuses on what unites us. That's Christ. All those things don't matter. We're united by Christ. And finally, the good shepherd causes division. The good shepherd is always pressing people to make a choice. Decide. Either you are for us or against us. You're either for Christ or against Christ. 
you're either a child of God or a child of the devil. They plead that people follow Christ, but never compromising Christ in, in the midst. The good shepherd does all these things because the true shepherd, the colossus, the chief shepherd, does all these things as an example to us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, despite our study of the word, you have been magnified before our, our mind. We see a glimpse of who you really are. We see your beauty. We see your beauty in your essence. We see your beauty in your works. Lord, that we will love you more. Lord, that we will cherish you more. That our passion will be single towards you. And because of that, because we love you like Peter, we would obey and feed the sheep, take care of the lamb, shepherd the flock of God as good under-shepherds. Lord, we do praise you and we ask that you grant us the grace to be the shepherds after your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Will the ushers please come forward?